0: the timing was just right. Oh, by the way, I have no monitor in here. I'm not sure why, but, uh, um, the timing was just right. Uh, some of the gentlemen that are assisting me with preparation for February, which I need to get started, uh, quickly. Um, I mean, February's going to be honest before you even know what's going on. Uh, mentioned a resource. Uh, here it is. Ugh. It is entitled The Drome Biblical Commentary for the 21st Century, Third Fully Revised Edition. Now, the drome Biblical Commentary has been around for a long, long time. Uh, This is a one-volume commentary from TNT Clark. What's interesting about this one is that it has a foreword by Pope Francis. So it is uh, promoted by the Pope as... uh, the best example we have of modern um, scholarship, it has a nihil abstap. That is amazing. I just look has a nihil abstap and imprimatur from um, Reverend Mister Daniel G. Welter, J.D., Chancellor, Archdiocese of Chicago, September tenth, twenty twenty, and an imprimatur from Most Reverend Ronald A. Hicks, Vicar General. Archdiocese of Chicago, September 10th, 2020. Look at that. That used to have a particular meaning uh, uh, as to accuracy, so on and so forth. Um, But, so here's... This is a very large collection of the current scholarship of the Roman Catholic Church. Um... And I'm going to read you some stuff from it. I was just reading. First thing I did, it literally arrived less than five minutes ago. So the timing was spot on. I have some quotes from it. I had already gotten some quotes from it earlier this morning before the hard copy uh, arrived. But the first thing I turned to was Matthew. Why? Um, We're all working fine? Okay. I just don't well um you know you, you turned off my camera during Apologia radio and now i don't have a monitor so i'm i'm not sure how well you're doing today but it's, we're gonna have to have a little talk about uh yeah that's okay don't worry about it um first thing i did was i turned to matthew now why would i turn to matthew Uh let's you know, Saturday's our big 40th anniversary. I sh- probably today should be talking about all that stuff, but I'm not. Uh, I did it on Apologia Radio, so you can go watch that. We're continuing to do what we do on this program, and that is deal with what's going on that's relevant to the church today. Um, people like Algo and all of Algo's acolytes around the world know exactly where I'm going. In 1993, John Paul II visited Denver for World Youth Day, and Rich and I drove up, and I debated Jerry Matatik's three and a half hours, two nights in a row, on the subject of papacy. First night was on the New Testament, second night was on Church History. And while we were debating Jerry, uh, Carl Keating and Patrick Madrid debated two fundamentalists, Ron Nemec and Jackson. Pastor Jackson, I forgot what his first name was. Anyways, they are fundamentalists, um, and it really wasn't a fair debate uh, as far as that goes. But one of the things that I have commented on now for 30 years, wow, that was 30 years ago, um, was the fact that when Carl or Patrick or both, I don't remember what it was, ask the other side, how do you know Matthew wrote Matthew? First of all, the answer they gave was, you know, well, it says in my King James Bible, so that's not the way to do things. Um, but the point was that there was an assumption being made on the part of the Roman Catholics that they know that Matthew wrote Matthew. And yet the vast majority of Roman Catholic scholarship today Um, scoffs at the idea of an apostolic authorship of Matthew. And here is the commentary that the current Pope says you should read. First thing I did was look up author and Matthew and it wasn't written by an apostle. Huh! Now, I'm not sure what the Jerome Biblical Commentary said in 1993, but this is nothing new. But this has Pope Francis's uh, forward in it. It has a Abstadt imprimatur, and Rome doesn't know who wrote Matthew. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, by the way, just quickly, my thanks again to everyone who not only makes it possible for me to be traveling around. You see me looking over like this, I'm, uh, there's a camera focused on the truck. <laughs> it's not my truck. It's a ministry's truck. But it's a truck I drive, pulling that fifth wheel. And uh, <clears throat> we are only two and a half hours from the border, which is wide open, and we're being invaded over it. Millions of people have entered our country illegally. Um, and so uh, things get stolen very often. So when you see me looking over there, it's I'm just keeping an eye on things because... Someone did try to steal Rich's car once, or at least get into it. I'm not sure they were really trying to steal it, but they, well, they 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 broke the do- they broke the door lock. I know that, but whether they're going to try to break the, yeah. Anyway, uh, and I saw it, and uh, and jumped on the phone and <laughs> scared the. I think somebody had to do some laundry that night. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Um, anyway, sorry about that. Um, little little bit of a. Consciousness thing got out of there, <laughs> off into things. Um, let's let's look since I've since I'm there. Let's look at a couple of the quotations from uh, this particular commentary. I'm sure there would be many more that we will share in the future. Um, but but this gives you an idea of the best of current Roman Catholic scholarship. In commenting on Leviticus chapter 18, verses 22 through 23, Leviticus 18:22 through 23 similarly prohibits sexual practices that do not produce offspring for the community. Um, I'll skip over the graphic there. Leviticus 18:22 does not speak about the modern concept of homosexuality or homoeroticism which in general was not known as a possible sexual orientation in antiquity. That's not true, by the way. Just just between us. In fact, it's laughably not true. But it's commonly repeated. Um, The penetration of a male by a male was a way to denigrate the penetrated one to humiliate strangers or the inferior party in warfare. See, for example, Genesis 19 and Judges 19. Oh, that's actually true. Thus, the Bible does not speak about same-sex love as one does today. This is the Jerome biblical commentary. The major interest of Leviticus 1822 and 2013 is to assure that males procreate offspring for the community. Hence, it is hermeneutically inappropriate to use these verses and similar passages in the Bible to ostracize homosexual males. This isn't biblical commentary. Okay, first of all, this has nothing to do with exegesis. This is woke propaganda uh, masquerading as biblical commentary and scholarship. And are we just going to say the Pope didn't read this part? Or is there a consistency in the Pope supporting uh, those who are seeking LGBTQ inclusion, and having just released a letter giving pastoral freedom in certain circumstances to bless same-sex unions. That was Monday. It's only Thursday. Hmm. Interesting. Very, very, very interesting. How about Romans chapter 1? Because the in Romans 1, 24-27 has been used as a clobber text, like, that, it literally says, as a clobber text, in quotes. So, I mean, the only people who use that terminology are gay-affirming writers. All right. Has been used as a clobber text to denigrate persons with same-sex orientation. It is worth reminding the reader... That such a use strips the text of its social and historical context and brings it to bear on an issue Paul's own audience would never have imagined or understood. Paul's contemporaries would have been familiar with multiple types of exploitative sexual relationships, including pedophilia, prostitution, and slavery. In each case, such relationships reveal and inscribe abusive power structures. Catch the power structures? This is as woke as the day is long. It's as leftist as the day is long. And Pope Francis says, "This is one you need to be reading." Uh, In each case, such relations reveal but describe abusive power structures. They have nothing to do. They have nothing to do with loving sexual relationships between consenting adults. This was written by by everyone, every single one of the pro homosexual organizations out there. This is on every one of their websites. And this is now the Jerome Biblical Commentary, forward by Pope Francis. Whatever contemporary moral arguments one wants to mount about same-sex relations, it is ethically irresponsible to use this passage in Romans 1 to close off contemporary exploration of the issues. This is leftism writ large. This isn't exegesis. This isn't biblical commentary. This is woke propaganda. With forward by the Pope, Nihilabstadt in impromptu. Mm mm mm. That used to mean something. What it meant in the nineteen fifties is not what it means in the twenty twenties, is it? Oh no, no, it's not. And here's one from uh, I think it's first Timothy. Decorum in prayer. The the instructions for men focus on a suitable frame of mind. For women, the restrictions are more stringent. Not only must they be modest and simple in attire, but they must keep silent during instruction, presumably in the assembly. This is justified by the man's temporal priority in creation and the woman's priority in sinning, with a grudging concession that a woman can be saved by childbearing and modesty. Such relegation of women agrees with the surface meaning of Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, 35 See the commentary there. But is hardly consonant with the important part played by women in the Pauline communities. The deacon Phoebe carried the letter to the Romans, Romans 16-1. Priscilla played her part as a catechist with her husband, Romans 16-3, Acts 18, 2, 18 through 26 And several other women in the Roman churches are congratulated for their hard work for the community, Romans sixteen six 6 15 Such prominence of women was not abnormal in the Jewish communities in the diaspora for several funerary inscriptions this period exist in which women are named as president of the synagogue. The author... Catch that? The author is here considerably more repressive of women than the Paul of the earlier letters. The instructions are not the last word for the changed social environment of today. Did you hear what's being said? Make sure you understand. The Jerome Biblical Commentary is saying Paul didn't write that. Oh, huh. Well, Trent Horn's telling us that Paul maybe didn't write, or at least promoting someone who doesn't believe that Paul, and then going on to talk about that in later follow-up, Paul didn't write Theonistos, 2 Timothy 3.16, either. There's a consistency here. The consistency here, isn't there? Yes, leftist, progressivist consistency is what we have. And the Pope says, "Hey, this is this is what you need to be reading, right there." I mean, it's and it's a beastie. See that? Look at the size of that thing. It's big, big, thick waste of paper. But um, yeah, there it is. The Jerome. Biblical commentary for the 21st century. Third, fully revised edition with a forward by Pope Francis. And filled with all of the leftist tripe that I had to deal with in seminary. Long, long ago. But There it is. There it is. So is imprimatur. nihil Abstadt. Nothing objectionable. Like I said, in the 1950s, that meant here's something that is faithful to the teaching of the church. What does it mean in 2020? Well when you got the Pope writing the forward, what does it mean? What does it mean? Did the popes of the 1950s believe what's in this? No. But the Pope does now. What about the next Pope? Um that's the whole point, folks. That's <sighs> on the last program we're talking about the fact here's here's the Pope. And he's, you know, someone. Let let let's let's try to give him the, the the best. Let's spin this the best we can. He doesn't want to see a schism in the church. No pope wants to be the pope when there a schism happens in the church. I mean, look what happened to Leo X. <laughs> he's not exactly remembered well by history. Uh, the pope at the time of the Reformation uh, excommunicated Martin Luther. Ex-Sergey domine all that stuff. Remember we were all we were all up on that goodness 5 years ago. Uh 6 years ago. Wow. Coming up on 6 years the end of this month. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Where did those 6 years go? Anyway, um so so let's say he's just trying to be a a good leader. And you've got the German bishops and they've got a lot of they got a lot of pull, you know, um German theology, Ratzinger was a German, um, and so he doesn't want to see a schism take place, and so he's throwing a bone. And, and look, John Paul II did this, and hey, he's been sainted. Uh, so John Paul II would put out an encyclical one year that was extremely conservative. Next year, it would have liberal stuff in, it and then back to the conservatives. And he's throwing, he's throwing bones. You know, he's he's trying to keep. I mean, there's, there's a, a wide, wide variety of... Everybody who say, says, you know, we're, we're all united <laughs> is living in a fantasy world. Living in a fantasy world. Uh, there is a wide variety of perspectives in, um, in the magisterium. Not as wide as maybe under John Paul II. Um, Francis has packed things out a lot of the conservatives, old, older men, they've died out. Um, I mean, you look at the College of Cardinals today, if Francis resigns tomorrow, there's a 95% chance that the next pope is going to be just as progressivist as Francis is, if not more, if not more. So, what what does this mean to to the Roman Catholics that are listening and they're going, how could the... How could the Pope allow for... How could only two years ago, in 2021, the Vatican say, you can't bless sin, and now you can bless sin? How does that work? Well, look, if, if Pope Francis is reading this commentary and it's woke, progressivist argumentation on key texts like Romans 1 and Leviticus 18 and 20, do you think he doesn't hold those same views? I'd say there's every bit of evidence that he does. And if those are his views on Leviticus 18 and 20 and Romans 1, and I haven't looked at 1 Corinthians 6 yet, that'll be interesting to look at. Um, If that's his perspective, then is there any question about what the future is going to hold, A, and B, is there any question that's not the perspective that was held for long before that. I mean, all right. You can look at you can look at the pornocracy, the utter degradation in the tenth century of the Bishopric of Rome, bought and sold brothels in the Vatican. Well, in Rome, um, just you, you can look at that, and and you you can look at the broad wide self-admitted history of homosexuality in the Roman Catholic priesthood and go, well, there's there's all your reasons right there. But officially, and this is what apologists always say, oh, it's one thing to have, you know, uh, there's bad stuff happening back then, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them mislead the church in official dogmatic teachings. See, So they make the distinction. The official position of the church has always been consistent in regards to the sinfulness of homosexuality, even if they were rampantly engaging in it anyways. Are you sure it's going to be that way in 20 years? I'm certainly not. No logical person could be. Not, not, not with what you see here. Not with what you see here. So... how many red pills does it take before you wake up and you realize uh, what I've been taught all along about this being the firm foundation this unchanging foundation it's just it doesn't work It it, it we're seeing it right in front of our eyes And so I think you're going to see more and more of these steady-vacantist groups growing because conservative Roman Catholics who have fought against Protestants like myself um, they don't want to they don't want to even consider the possibility that we've been right all along and so it's time to sort of buy into the Well, there's going to be a period where there's going to be great confusion. And, you know, there's there's all sorts of stuff out there already. You know, and I I, I would imagine if Jerry Matatix is still traveling, he is now. He's now got more material than he's ever had before for his meeting with a dozen people at the Holiday Inn. um, Which is what he's been doing for, what, 20 years now? Something like that? I mean, I really don't know what he's doing anymore. I've, I've lost track. I, I've, I've admitted the last time I saw Jerry Matics in any form was when he lost on Jeopardy. That was it. I, I honestly don't know what he's done since then. I feel for the guy. But I'll be honest with you. I bet if, if we got him on the phone, he'd still be in debate mode from Boston College in 93. He'd just be right back, pick right back up. It's true. It's just, just wow. Yeah, that's that's the way it would be. He's been driving all day long. Always had a diet Pepsi, and and yeah, that's that's yeah, that's that's what would happen. So, I I wonder how much more is going to come out between now and February, because. When I when I debate Trent Horn on sola scriptura, um, we we can't pretend that Francis doesn't exist. I can't get these guys, and even even less now, to really deal with the reality of Pope Francis and the fact that he is changing. Roman Catholic Church teaching. He's changed it on on capital punishment. And he is plainly, purposefully, intentionally changing the moral and ethical teachings of the Roman Catholic Church on the subject of the LGBTQ revolution. He is, wake up! You know it. You're seeing it. Right in front of your eyes. What will you do about it? What will you do about it? That's um, that's the question. All right. We also on the last program uh, talked about uh, Andy Stanley and the uh, conference that they did. Got to plug this thing back in here. Sorry, there we go. USB ports are not all that large. Um, I was recharging my uh, my thingamabobby there so I can find my keys since I'm old and I lose them. Um it's true. You know, it's nice to be able to go where are my, where are my keys? Uh, oh, there they are. Okay. Um we talked about Andy Stanley and the Unconditional Conference. And we listened to some of his comments and that's I guess that sermon's out now. So, you know, uh 48 hours later, high quality sound now available. Um but there is a fellow on Twitter every once in a while all the, <clears throat> all the conservatives on Twitter there's two guys, Zach Lambert and Kevin M. Young, okay they're both wild eyed progressivists, just some people think they're not real accounts; they're just troll accounts to get conservatives angry. No, I think they're real because I know that there are this kind of these kinds of progressives are all over out there. And most of us live in our little enclaves, and we don't run into these folks, and so we don't really interact with them. Uh, So, Zach Lambert went to the conference. He's not a part of Andy Stanley's church, but he... Well, I'll just read what he said. I was at the now infamous Unconditional Conference last week at Andy Stanley's North Point Church, put on by Embracing the Journey. I went to be with some dear friends, but more than that, I wanted to see if this conference would be yet another bait-and-switch. A space that claimed to be safe and supportive of LGBTQ folks, but was actually all about telling them they need to leave behind their sexual orientation and or gender identity to fully follow Jesus. Y'all, it was not a bait-and-switch. It was safe, supportive, and affirming. They explicitly communicated they were not trying to change anyone's theology, and they didn't. But every speaker, video, book, and breakout, I saw fully affirmed LGBTQ plus folks. I saw pastors advocating for inclusion, parents welcoming their children's same-sex partners into the family, trans folks sharing their transition stories, and queer people leading at literally every level. On Sunday, Andy preached a sermon explaining why North Point hosted the conference. The sermon was compiled of one minute I completely disagreed with. He said North Point still teaches that biblical marriage between one man and one woman. This gives you an idea of how apostate this man is. I mean, he has no connect Zach Lambert has no connection at all to any kind of biblical theology, historic Christian faith, nothing like that. He's he's abandoned all of it. Um And 48 minutes of advocating for full inclusion for LGBTQ plus folks in the church. Andy said this is an issue where they don't want to draw lines that exclude but circles that fully include everyone, married gay folks, trans folks, and everyone else. And if you have, quote-unquote, married uh, gay men speaking at the conference, well, you know, you can... You can sit there all you want and say biblical marriage between a man and a woman, which is what Jesus taught, of course. Um, but if you're then pointing to the great example of these people, you are contradicting yourself so plainly, so clearly, so fundamentally, that no one is going to believe a word you have to say about anything else ever again, and nor should they you you don't understand that you can't define the word truth without reference to terms of consistency. And you are being wildly inconsistent. You cannot do those two things. That's why none of these churches, none of these side B folks remain side B folks. They end up going to side A, becoming fully fully affirming, and that's what's going to happen with North Point too. They can sit around all day and say, we believe in biblical marriage. um. No, you don't. You just allowed the biblical marriage bed to be defiled right in front of your own people? And you're going to say, but we believe in biblical marriage? No, you don't. No, you don't. It's right there, right in front of everybody. I don't know how. You've you've got to just really practice a lot of self-deception to end up at that point. You really do. I go on. We still have a long way to go. <laughs> But I am hopeful. I am grateful for this conference and the amazing people who made it happen. I believe it will save lives, restore families, and make a positive difference for the full inclusion of our LGBTQ plus siblings in the church. So in other words, uh, that gospel stuff, we're getting rid of it. (laughs) We've got more work to do, but uh, it's not the gospel that will save lives. It's not the gospel that will restore families. It will not be the gospel to make a positive difference for the full inclusion of blah, 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 blah. It's this kind of stuff. You know, that, that's, it's, it's not Christianity. It's this new religion. As my friend Sally Gary wrote, this conference was a gift, a costly gift, risking reputation and safety and status, and yes, potentially livelihood and security of family. Well, if that's what it costs for apostasy, that's a good thing. Apostasy should be cost, costly. really should be. It really should be. That is certainly true, but our LGBTQ plus siblings are worth the risk. Their lives are infinitely more valuable than whatever status, security, or financial cost may come. I pray that every pastor and Christian in the world would come to believe the truth that Jesus loves LGBTQ plus folks, and they should be fully included in every part of the church. This was a step in the right direction. Of course, these people do not believe in repentance because they don't know the gospel. They'll never use the term repent. Jesus loves every repentant LGBTQ plus person and will include them in his church because he will change them. Such were some of you, not such are some of you. So Zach Lambert and all these false teachers, false prophets, they will receive their reward. They will. You you do not pretend to be a Christian and lie about the gospel in this way. You just don't do it. There is a price to be paid before the judgment seat of Christ. But the point is, here is a wild-eyed leftist progressivist, and he's like, "The whole thing was affirming. And it was. It was. That's, that's what it was all about. So when we, when we looked at this, when we saw this coming, we tried to say, "But you know, you, look, you look at all the people you've got speaking, you've got gushy and all the rest of these, but it, this is not a middle of the road. This is not a mediating position. And here someone way over on the left goes, it wasn't. It was fully affirming. Of all the aspects. And and you got to understand, it's one thing to be affirming of homosexuality, but to then go to redefining marriage and then go to transgenderism. I mean how anyone can pretend I'll go with orange today. How anyone, sort of colorful anyways, how anyone can pretend to hold this in their hand and say this doesn't tell you that God made men and women. Good grief, did you notice that, did you see the Hindu prime minister of the United Kingdom within the past week Stood in front of microphones, and and I I could play it. I saw it on Twitter just just, uh, a few hours ago. And said, don't be bullied into being forced to believe that men can become women and women can become men. Men are men, and women are women, and that's all there is to it. Not even Trump could say that. It almost makes me go, might there be... A smidgen of sanity left out there. I don't know. I just thought it was hiding in the woods. But you can't hold you can't hold this in your hand and and defend any kind of transgender ideology. You, you, you can't. So where where will Andy Stanley be going from here? I don't know. I don't know. I think he's I think that was the last floodgate and any last semblance is just going to be washed away. He can't he can't stop it. He can't stop it. I think he knows deep down inside where it's going to end up going. I think he's going to kind of kind of pretend, okay, we got that done. we're going to do other stuff now. He's going to try to pretend, but it's just going to be too much uh, too much pushing on him. To really, to really keep it from... They're just going to go all the way. They'll end up going all the way. And of course, there's a network of churches. I I, I saw folks on Twitter you know, talking about just how widely distributed their materials are and how they influence so many others. Um, I forget which year it was. I think it was 2017, 28, maybe even 2016. I was... I started talking about the tsunami of apostasy. And, uh, and we're seeing it. We are, we are most definitely seeing it taking place. Th- speaking of a tsunami of apostasy, of course, uh, Dr. Kevin M. Young, who I've challenged to debate, but he will not, um, especially when he claims to be an expert in biblical languages and church history. I figure I can hold my own in those areas myself. Far more published than he is in those areas. But uh, Kevin M. Young... Uh, tweeted recently, and I'm going to keep calling them tweets. What am I supposed to say? He Xed recently? Or just posted? Po- posted? Posted is what we did on BBSs in the 1980s, okay? It's a very boring word. Um, so he tweeted recently, The original sin was certainty. Saying the Bible clearly says is to pick fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and bad again. Each day we are tempted to believe that we can sit in God's seat at the table. Don't bite. Well, you got to give them props for um, uh, ease of expression, I guess. Um, You know, that fits real nicely. Sounds real nice. And remember, I did the debate last year with the guy, and and uh, I'd actually have to have the shirt in here to remember his name, but he had written a book uh, about um, what was it called? Uh, sola uncertainty or something like that. It was it was all about this same idea that. If you say that God has made any revelation that is clear, uh, then you're playing God, and you don't understand the nature of Scripture and the purposes of Scripture and things like that. And of course, they can point to people because people make all sorts of dumb statements all the time about you know you, you know a Kenneth Copeland, okay, you know he'll make. He'll make absurd statements and blame it on the Bible all the time. And so it's easy for them to point to that kind of stuff. And the Paula Whites and the Kenneth Copelands and the Kenneth Hagans and the Jesse Duplantis and uh, all the rest of these people. uh, It's real easy to point to people like that and go, see, see, there there you go. As if what that means is um, that when Luke said, I've written these things so that you might know for certain. You might have certainty. Um, that that means that, uh, you can't actually have certainty. Um, that's where they're that's where they're going. So, good old Kevin M. Young. Uh, I don't follow him any longer because it's just. But every once in a while, somebody will retweet something, and that's where this uh, came across. I, uh, thing here. Um, well, once again. Has any, is this happening to anybody else? I, you know, I, I started using TweetDeck last year. <sighs> they keep changing it, obviously. And and a lot of the changes have been good. Okay. I like being able to edit stuff. I can't do it in TweetDeck. I've got to, I've got to put it into regular Twitter and then edit it. Um, right. You can't edit replies either. Um, and, but recently, starting last week, I'll look over at my main column and I'll start reading something. And it'll actually be of interest. I want to continue reading it. And then all of a sudden, it disappears. And something new appears in its place. And I'm just like, and I've wasted time trying to find it, but it's gone. And you're halfway through an interesting sentence. You really wanted to follow up on it and it's just gone. Uh, it's... um. A little frustrating um but but there you go um, i'm I'm noticing a bunch of stuff that has appeared since I last commented um oh uh, there's a tweet saying uh someone is nominating me for Speaker of the house that's um <laughs> Well, given I don't think they changed the dress code for the house like they did for the Senate. So I'm not sure I'd fit in the house. <laughs> uh yeah, I I heard I heard about that. Yeah. Cuz I I'm thinking I'm thinking the House Representative filled with Coogees would be pretty pretty epically wild. What what are you doing? Uh-oh you 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 put that high dollar value four k camera on yourself and then you don't use it. i don't understand why, but um of course, I can't see it because uh someone can't get the monitor working yeah. in here yeah well but yeah yes, so <clears throat> that should tell you something about the nature of Kujis and the fact that they would probably fit right in with that group just that's a that's just a just putting that out that is a really bad argument i'm sorry that that's a kevin m young level argument (laughs) he he was really thinking oh i don't think so uh okay white for speaker of the house all right uh bible care and share uh put that one up there there you go um yeah there's gonna be a lot of stuff that i'm gonna be having to look at here um I, was, I see somebody talking about uh, John Cooper's book, uh, What uh, Woke, Wimpy, and Weak, I think. Woke, Weak, and Wimpy, or something along those lines. Yeah, that's going to be... We're going to have him on, like I said, uh, November 16th uh, on the program. He's going to be joining us to talk about all that stuff. So, uh, And he goes after all these things, too. Okay, let me switch over to uh, the last topic here. Uh, I am glad that that uh, commentary showed up. I, I'm going to have some... Int- I I can't spend too much time with it, but it is, since it is relevant to the upcoming debates, I, let me just mention something. There's there's all sorts of people who are suggesting, well, you need to debate this of person, you need to debate that person. Um, Between now and February, I... I'm sorry. Um, I have the next two Sundays at Apologia. My... Sermon topic this week is going to be very difficult, dealing with a church discipline issue. Um, And then I have a we have a leadership thing the next week, and then that puts us halfway through October. That gives me only three months for five debates, and I have to have, for example, one of the ways we, one of the things I had to agree to do to get Dale Tuggy to even debate was to uh, give him my opening presentation by February 1st. I never put keynote stuff together that early. Uh never. Um you know, he's he's a completely a manuscript guy. He he com- is completely based upon reading uh stuff and I that's not me. So um just so much on such a wide variety of topics that I just have to be disciplined and go, no, I have lined out an amazingly wide variety of topics, from soul scriptura to purgatory to is Jesus Yahweh to two on Calvinism from completely different perspectives. Um, And if I give in to the temptation to be going all sorts of other directions. And we're going to continue doing this program, and I'm not just going to talk about those topics, though you can sort of guess that there will be more discussion of quotes like I just gave you from the Jerome Biblical Commentary and things like that. Um, And for those of you who are new, new or newer, if you go back to 2009... Um two thousand well, pretty much just two thousand nine. There were all sorts of programs where we listened to Bart Ehrman lectures, Bart Ehrman debates, and respond to things. Why? Because I was preparing to debate Bart Ehrman, and we did that debate in two thousand nine. Spent at least six months in preparation for that. He spent zero time in preparation for that. Um because well, we don't won't go into all that. Um, so we've done this in the past, and if I'm wise, I will be um, looking at these things and, and dealing with this. That doesn't mean we're not going to address any other topic. We will keep talking about what's going on, you know. With uh, you, you can't help but be looking at the weaponization of the legal system in the West, especially in the United States, and what that can mean. Uh, We've got to deal with all this Christian nationalism stuff. Um, And I find myself very much in the middle, getting bombarded from both sides. Because I'm very much with the commitment that a secular worldview... Cannot maintain a culture. It is a commitment to the culture of death and will destroy human life and human flourishing. And so, no, we, we cannot continue in a system that allows drag queen story hour. It's abusive. That's abusive of children. It is based upon a rejection of man as creating the image of God. So, I'm totally online there. Um, my post-millennialism tells me that there will be a day when, according to the promises of Scripture, the coastlands will seek for his Torah, his law. What would cause that to happen? A massive work of the Spirit of God. A massive work of the Spirit of God. And so, people assume that if that's where you are, and you agree, yeah, we can't keep going the way we're going right now. <laughs> okay. That secularism has eviscerated the foundations of the Constitution of the United States. The founders themselves said, this is a document for a religious and moral people. And when you make irreligion or anti religion and immorality the new good, <laughs> okay? I get it, but at the same time, I push back against Stephen Wolfe, and I push back against a form of sacralism, so much that all he can do is mock the term sacralism. Ah, it's just 20th century garbage. Okay, I'm not impressed, really not impressed at all. But I've been talking about sacralism for decades. I don't care where Stephen Wolfe has been. I've been talking about it for decades as have other individuals. And I push back and go, look, if you don't have that massive change that comes from the Puritan hope. Ever seen the book, Puritan Hope? It's about post-millennialism. It's about the Puritans' hope. And why they did the things they did. And why they were willing to not see the accomplishment of those things but look to the future for those things you might want to look at the book um without that work if you're talking about trying to christianize if you're talking about trying to uh rule from the top down i mean i'm i am literally seeing people talking about having a a what was, uh, what was the guy they were referring to? It wasn't Hitler, thankfully. I'm sorry? Yeah, a, a, a Christian Franco. A Christian Franco. We need a strong Christian leader that will, in essence, essence whip everybody in, in line. And I go, you know, we've been there and done that, and we've gotten the t-shirt, and especially my forefathers did. I'd like to ask a question of all the Stephen Wolf Christian nationalist type guys. Okay, I'd like to ask you a question. Um, You've probably never heard of Fritz Erba. um, But look him up and find out what happened to him. And answer me honestly. Was it right or wrong that Fritz Erba was imprisoned? And kept there till he died. If it was right, I'd like to know the principles. Because I know what Luther thought. Luther was a sacralist. Calvin was a sacralist. Calvin laid the foundations of the destruction of his own sacralism, but he was still a practicing sacralist in his life. So, Luther knew exactly where Fritz Erba was. He had been there. He hid in that castle. He had, he had looked down that hole. He knew it was there. He knew where he was. And he felt that it was right for him to be there. Because Fritz Erba threatened Christendom. The social order. Luther had a, you know, go listen to my lecture on the two Luthers. Luther had a deep and abiding fear of chaos breaking out. And chaos is not a Christian virtue. (laughs) Okay, no one's saying that it is. But he had a deep and abiding fear that he would be blamed for chaos breaking out. And so he could make a political argument as to why Fritz Erbe should not be allowed to spread his poison in the society of Germany in the 1530s. And he could argue that they needed to be fighting the Muslim invasion and that this weakened the the, the ability to do that. And there, there's lots of things that could be argued. But answer the question, was it right for Fritz Erba to be stuck in that hole in the ground for seven years till he died? For not baptizing his babies? For believing the New Testament? This is a Christian man. No one was questioning that he was a Christian man. It was just what he believed the New Testament to teach, which had been translated right there by Martin Luther the decade before. Which is the irony of all this. If it was right, upon what basis was it right? If it was wrong, then what is the basis of saying that it's wrong for a Christian prince to do what the Lutherans did with fritz Erba? That's a, that's a question I'd like to hear the answer to. Because, you see, sacralism involves the fundamental violation of the differing spheres of sovereignty between the state, the church, the family. It is a um, destruction of those distinctions. And the history of sacralism from, say, the days of Augustine onward is a constant back and forth where the balance between church and state changes. So there are periods of time where the state predominates, the, the church is utterly under its control, um, there's, there's serious degradation there, and then you have periods of papal supremacy where the church can make the emperor stand in the snow out, outside the papal residence um, seeking mercy from the, sta- from the church. But it's an inevitable uh, constant back and forth that you can't, you can't stop. And I've been saying, look, un- until there is that tremendous work of the Spirit of God, even arguing about how to avoid that kind of stuff, is just silly. There's no reason to be doing it. All it does is create division. It's not going to accomplish anything. No one's taking over. Right now, it seems to me, this system is going to collapse and take a lot with it. Um, and so the question is, what's going to come out of the ashes of the current secular failure? The demonstration of the rebellion that is part of man's um, situation. So, along with this, uh, Stephen Wolfe, and others um, from, like, American Reformer, expressed really dismissive um, attitudes toward Cornelius Van Til, Greg Bonson, um, Scott Oliphant, John Frame, um, everyone who has practiced presuppositional apologetics for quite some time. And I've said more than once... uh, it's been cool to be a presuppositionalist for a while. But there is there there are certain commitments that have to be pretty deeply grounded for you to remain true to that perspective. And no Thomist can be a presuppositionalist. Anybody who's read Van Til knows that he was no fan, no no fan of Thomas Aquinas. And of course, the the big thing today is for people who have read very little of Thomas and very little of Van Til to be very confident that Van Til didn't understand Thomas. (laughs) Um, And again, when it comes to Thomas, you can can pick and choose from such a wide variety of Thomistic scholarship. You can always find somebody to say what you want them to say. Anyway, (coughs) this You know, someone had said, well, you know, here's the things he's saying. Stephen Wolf is saying about biblicism, uh, presuppositionalism. You need to debate him. Well, there are a number of topics I would be more than happy to debate uh, Stephen Wolf on that he will not debate on. And it's because we come at this from completely different perspectives. Stephen Wolf's book is, is... Almost, When it comes to biblical argumentation, there's almost a vacuum. And he says from the start, this, that's not what I'm intending to do. Okay, great. There's nothing that I address that that's not the direction I come from. So I, don't, I just cannot imagine how any of this would ever work. Because you have a self-professed reformed biblicist, and he thinks biblicism is foolishness. Of course, how he's defining it, who knows? I mean, most of the definitions we see floating around out there are so ridiculous that it's difficult not to laugh when you read them. But my argument would be, I'll be happy to debate Stephen Wolf on presuppositionalism and its biblical nature. All he wants to do is say, well, but it's new and it's novel. So secularism. Don't you, don't you get that? Don't you guys get this? All of that, just Stephen Wolf. But all you anti-ventilian, anti-presuppositionalists, sit down and shut up for a second. Okay? Just sit down and shut up for a second. Stop with all your babbling and listen for a moment. The world that John Calvin, I believe, if John Calvin were alive today and he was he would read deeply in the secular perspective, I believe given the things that he says about scriptural supremacy and the nature of man and the institutes, he says all sorts of stuff that's very, very consistent with a presuppositional perspective. But he's in a sacral context. He's not dealing with atheists. In fact, no one until the 19th century was dealing with the world that Darwin created. You need to understand the watershed that Darwin if you don't get that, then you're not even, you're obviously not an apologist. You're obviously not dealing with these things. You haven't thought these things through. Darwin kicked open a door. Up until that point, any Christian apologist was dealing with some kind of theistic system. It might be radically wild and and the the, the nature of the gods minimized. But they still had to explain the existence of life. Once Darwin comes along, all of a sudden, hey, 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 look what we can do now. It changed everything. It changed everything. It changed the level in the human mind at which we are having to engage with the rebellion of man. It's at a deeper level now than it ever was before. And so, true full-on secularism an anti-theistic perspective that is what is being fed, what's being injected forcibly into our youth today in pretty much every public school classroom. I, was, I did a walk yesterday morning instead of a ride and I saw these two kids come out of their house and walking toward the local school, and I'm just sort of like, well, there they go to be conformed to the image of the state. Yep. Nothing nothing going into the head there other than... But anyway, this is what we're dealing with today. And that is a completely different context. A completely different context than the Reformers were dealing with or anybody was before Darwin. And so if you don't see that what, what has to be done is, is to have an epistemology based upon the certainty of God's revelation and that to grant to man the autonomy that is absolutely necessary within Thomistic theology, that's absolutely necessary within non-presuppositional apologetics, To say to man, it's up to you to make these decisions. You're, You're not understanding the centrality of the biblical teaching that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. That all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. You don't understand those things. You're not going to be able to deal with those fundamental levels of rebellion in the anthropology of man. From a biblical perspective, anyway. Now, obviously, those are not reformed. This isn't even this isn't even relevant to you. Your your anthropology is unbiblical. Uh, so we can't even go there. But for those who claim to be reformed, claim to be good Westminster men, well, even the Westminster was written before Darwin. And if you can't see how Darwin has completely changed the very context in which language is being used. I I don't know what to say to you other uh, than to try to point you to the obvious realities of what's going on around you. So again, what would what would a debate even be? I mean, I don't think he's going to debate is presuppositionalism consistent with biblical revelation? Because everything he's been saying is, well, oh, this is just all modern modern stuff. And you're, you're not really reformed. I mean, Reform, I've got Reformed Orthodoxy, as if there is a single thing of Reformed Orthodoxy. But again, that was formed before Darwin. We're talking about today. We're talking about right now. We're talking about taking this Bible and making it applicable to where we are now. Not by changing it, but by being consistent with what it teaches about who God is and who man is. How do you do that now that we're dealing with a world that starts with the idea that they are an accident? with no meaning, and that language can be changed right, left, and center, whatever. You've got to deal with that at a level that classical apologetics cannot deal with. It can't go there. So I don't even know what the debate would be. But you want to debate that if, if the thesis is uh, presuppositional apologetics is consistent with Biblical revelation on nature of God, nature of man. Defend that one easily. Easily. Or if you want to turn around, um uh, Thomas's um uh, theistic proofs are consistent with biblical revelation. I'll deny that. I it would be also easy to is inconsistent with reformed soteriology and everything related to it as well but the 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 boogeyman down at the bottom of the page is I don't reject the term biblicist and I'm not going to, I'm a reformed biblicist I've already defined what that is I can give you plenty of examples Calvin was one too, I can prove that I can prove that it's not that difficult to do so there you go Um, some things to be thinking about. So that's the last program before our uh, celebration next week. I would assume, uh, since I leave, I think, Thursday for this thing, we'll we'll try to get at least one program in next week, probably have a rundown on uh, what happened over the weekend. I'm sure there'll be lots of things to talk about and be thankful for and all the rest of that kind of neat, fun stuff. Um, But then, like I said, I have the next two Sundays as far as preaching and apologia, and uh, um, at least this coming Sunday is going to be a challenge. It really, it's going to be a challenge. And uh, so for those of you who are friends and supporters, pray for that that particular uh, presentation as well. All right, thanks for listening to the program today. Uh, We will see you, Lord willing, next week. God bless.